Hello, everyone, to the latest episode of the Obligations of Memory podcast for the Jewish Culture and Holocaust Remembrance Group. Today, I'm honored to have my friend and colleague, uh, Saul Pincheski, with me. And Saul is, has written an amazing book about his life and his parents called Bergen-Belsen to Brooklyn. I recommend it very highly, and you can get the book on Amazon. So welcome, Saul. Nice to have you with us today. And so um, why don't you give a little bit of a background on who you are, what your parents were uh, all about, and we'll take, we'll take it from there. Okay. I, uh, I'm a second-generation Holocaust survivor. My parents uh, were uh, victims of the Holocaust. They uh, met each other in a concentration camp, and uh, they were survivors of Auschwitz. My father was a survivor of Buchenwald as well. My mother was a survivor of Bergen-Belsen. And uh, I was born in Germany uh, right after the war, where they actually had a romance in, in concentration camp, if you can believe that. And then uh, they... Got, were able to get to to each other, but I'm not going to really go into the concentration camp because uh, we're we're, we're going to we're going to stick to uh, what motivated me to write this book. That's great. And and what motivated me to write this book was SOS, which I'll I'll explain shortly. Uh, first, I'm going to give you a little scenario that I'm going to read, and then hopefully you, you'll get you'll get a little kick out of it. An Airbus 380 is on its way across the Atlantic. It flies consistently consistently at 800 kilo, kilo uh, miles per hour at 30,000 feet when suddenly a Eurofighter with Tempo Mach 2 appears. The pilot of the fighter jet slows down, flies alongside the Airbus, and greets the pilot of the passenger plane by radio. Airbus, boring flight, isn't it? Now have a look here. He rolls his jet on its back, accelerates, breaks through the sound barrier, rises rapidly to a dizzying height, and then swoops down almost to sea level in a breathtaking dive. He loops back up next to the Airbus, and he asks, Well, how was that? The Airbus pilot answers, Very impressive. But now you look. The jet pilot watches the Airbus, but nothing happens. It continues to fly stubbornly straight with the same speed. After 15 minutes, the Airbus pilot radios, well, how is that? Confused, the jet pilot asks, what did you do? The Airbus pilot uh, laughs and says, I got up, I stretched my legs, I walked to the back of the aircraft to use the washroom, then I got a cup of coffee, and a chocolate fudge pastry. Now, the moral of the story is, when you are young, speed and adrenaline seems to be great. But as you get older and wiser, you learn 
that comfort and peace are far more important. <laughs> this is called SOS. Very good. Slower, thought. older, but smarter. <laughs> I think that's now, terrific. So now, now tell us why that makes us what why you said it and why it has it get to your book. Okay, well now that I am SOS, slower, older, and smarter. It has motivated me to share what I have carried all of my years in my mind and heart about my folks and all the other Holocaust survivors. I feel the torches of their existence, the fire that seared their souls, the strength of spirit that mustered to rebuild their lives. We all thrive and our children too because of their great qualities, faith, compassion, perseverance, courage, brilliance, and vision. This is the path they have so valiantly cleared before us for our children and our people. Really, God bless them. Really nice. So you wrote this book. Tell us a little bit about your process. Uh, the process was, I, I thought, that, you know, uh, like 20 years ago, that it, it would be an interesting story. Uh, there, there were stories like Anne Frank and, you know, other Holocaust survivors that had written books. But I thought my, that my book would be a little more different because my upbringing was really uh, not typically Jewish. Um, my parents had a candy store in uh, Brooklyn, which was in a totally Italian neighborhood with some Irish uh, very, very, very few Jews. And, uh, you know, I was brought up in the back of the candy store because that's all my parents could afford. And, uh, it was a, uh, a, a, an interesting experience in that, uh, I, I had like a, a, uh, a second family that lived right behind the candy store because the hours that my parents worked in the candy store were from like five, six o'clock in the morning until like midnight. Uh, they would swick, uh, switch shifts. And, uh, the Fasaro family took, took, took an interest in me and, uh, they had come into the store and invited me for Sunday dinners. You know, Italians typically have a Sunday dinner with meatballs, spaghetti, uh, you know, uh, and, and salad and, uh, pastries and, you know, it, it was, Unbelievable. I, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, so basically, yeah, that was uh, that was my uh, bringing up until, uh, you know, going to public school and uh, learning that, uh, you know, that, you know, all the kids around me were going to have a communion. And when I came home and asked my mother when I was going to have my communion, she said, which means, oh, my God, what happened here? My, my son doesn't even know he's Jewish, and look at all I've been through in my life. So she spoke to my dad, and they they discussed that uh, they need to send me to a Jewish school. Well, the closest Jewish school was two bus uh, rides away, so uh, my mother went and enrolled me. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's all in the book. I don't want to give away the whole book, so I'm going to I'm going to let's stop leave. for a second. So you have now when you started to think about this book 20 years ago, your mom was living, correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I uh, did uh, in those days, I did cassette tapes. 
with my mom, sat down and, uh, you know, taped everything with her. Um, you know, most, most, most of the things in the candy store, I, I all knew, but, but, you know, the things she divulged to me, uh, were, were more heart wrenching with regard to her experience in concentration camp. I mean, you know, that was, that was no picnic for her, but she was always, she was always a positive person. So she, she would always tell me, you know, thank God I made it. Thank God for grandma. You know, she had such faith in her grandma. And, you know, whenever she talked about her grandmother, she was like, you know, so excited, you know, to relive those stories with her grandmother. So when you um, talked to her about the book, what was her feelings? Was she happy that you were going to write the book? Uh, she, yeah, she was, she was happy about it. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, her, her greatest joy was my two daughters. Um, you know, as far as, uh, you know, the book, she did, she did the, uh, interview for Steven Spielberg. Um, you know, she, she really had the family as the, uh, priority. And, uh, you know, she, she, she just respected me for what I was trying to do. And she always knew that I was always someone that was trying to protect them and make sure that they were, uh, taken care of. And, uh, just like they tried to take care of me in their older, older age, I tried to take care of them as best as I could. I moved them from Florida to California. And, uh, so, you know, they, they actually, uh, they 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 really enjoyed my mother called California God's country. She said this is God's country. And uh you tell, know, me, tell me a little bit about your father. So your father, I, I know about your mom, so tell us also about how your how your dad played into the story and how um he felt about the book. Um you know, my father was was a, a very uh soft spoken kind of guy, except when it came to like uh, anti-Semitism, where he got all excited, which, you know, uh, happened a lot in the candy store um, when, you know, someone would come in and say, uh, you know, something like Jew bastard or something like that. My father would get irate and we had a counter where, you know, people would be served uh, ice cream, sodas, coffee, whatever. Anyway, um, he jumped over the counter and you know, went and like started beating up on, on some of these Italian guys who, who was stupid enough to make those anti-Semitic statements. And, you know, fortunately, um, there was a man that we call in the book, the Gaon, which, uh, in Hebrew means the chief rabbi. And, uh, you know, in, in their minds, he was like a chief because he commanded a tremendous amount of respect. Little, little did they know that he was the consigliere of one of the crime families and uh, a mafia boss. Uh, but, you know, for some reason, he uh, saw the tattooed numbers on my mother's arms. And uh, he said to her, uh, I know what you've been through. And uh, I'm, I'm going to make sure that you don't get hurt anymore. And, uh, he sure did. He sure did. And, and, you know, to, to some extent, you know, he was my godfather. You know, you, you, it, most people, 
uh, have seen the movie The Godfather, but you know, it's uh, it, it, it was really a, a an amazing uh, experience to have someone who could be so compassionate, and yet on the other hand, I don't want to know. <laughs> I don't want to know. Yeah. So tell me, how did you did your dad like the idea of you writing the book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, you know, look, you know, he, he really felt good about the fact that, uh, his family would be mentioned because, you know, my mother always said that she was a much more jovial and cheerful person because she was an only child. So she really didn't lose all that much. And, uh, my father had, Two brothers, two sisters. He had a big family and he lost all of them. And, you know, uh, in the book, it, it also illustrates the fact that he lost his brother who survived the Holocaust and, uh, tragically got struck by lightning in 1956 and died. And, uh, you know, that was like, uh, destroyed him completely. He, he had a nervous breakdown. And, uh, that made life very, very difficult for my mom and myself because he, he couldn't, uh, he couldn't function very well. And, uh, here we had this candy store. But, you know, it, it, it was amazing how the people, uh, came in and helped, uh, the people who actually helped to, uh, Take us because the, my, my uncle, uh, who, who was struck by the lightning, he had a chicken farm, which is what a lot of, uh, Holocaust survivors did after they made some money. They went into rural areas and they, you know, they wanted to like live in a quiet existence after what they had gone through. And, uh, he lived in Vineland, New Jersey in those days, which was really rural. It was like the real sticks and, uh, he raised chickens. And, uh, he, he would bring the eggs to a market and that's how he made a living. And, uh, so when you're talking about, we were in a candy store in Brooklyn and the phone rings in the, in the middle of the night and, uh, my mother answers the phone, uh, which was in the candy store because it was a phone booth. In those days, you know, you dialed with the phone and you put 10 cents in to make the call. But, you know, the people who called us, the phone would ring inside the candy store. So we'd run from the back of the candy store where we, where we, uh, where we lived. And, uh, my mother answered the phone. And unfortunately, you know, someone divulged to her that, uh, uncle, uncle Max or my uncle Max, uh, died. My father completely broke down. He started banging his head against the wall. And, uh, I, I was like, terrified my mother ran over grabbed him you know uh, put him down on the bed you know and he was shaking and he was really out of it and um you know from there you know uh he, he wanted to be able to go to the funeral and all the other things and so my mother went into the bar which was right next door to the candy store which was a famous bar where you know the mafia hung out it was the 19th hole and, uh, of course, uh, the, the bar is open, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning. And she went in and she said, Oh no, what should I do? What should I do? Uh, my, my husband's, uh, brother passed away. 
uh, he's, he's having a nervous breakdown. We need, we really, we really need to go to New Jersey. We didn't have a car. Sure enough, the bartender whose name was Charlie Chip. In those days, everybody had a, a like a, a, a name, you know, like a, like a, like, you know, you, you weren't, uh, you, you weren't just Joe. You were, uh, you, 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 you were Joe, Joe the killer. You were, uh, you were, uh, balloons. You know, he, he was the local bookmaker, balloons. Uh, I mean, all these guys had names, you know, <laughs> that went along with their, with their profession. So anyway, so. Somebody in the bar, uh, I think the guy's name was Rocky. Rocky drove us all the way from, uh, Brooklyn to, uh, uh, Hamilton, New Jersey, where the farm was. It, it, it was, it, 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 it was, you know, an awful experience for me as a eight year old kid and especially for my cousin who was, uh, only a year older than me, nine years old, uh, that, uh, you know, lost her dad. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it was just terrible. And, and the Holocaust survivors that came for the funeral and, the, the, you know, the, 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 the shroud that they put over the uh, casket, they, they were all tearing at it and sh- crying and screaming. It, it, it was, it was awful. A right, terrible so, experience let me, for me. Let me move you off of that. So you took you, you mean it took you 20 years to publish this book? So why so long? Okay. So, so, you know, when I, when I, when I started, um, and I made these tapes and, uh, my, uh, literary skills were not that great. Um, what do you, what do you to, let me ask you, what is your profession? I forgot to mention that. Uh, I'm a dentist. Okay. I, I know the tooth, the whole tooth and nothing but the tooth. <laughs> so, you know, so basically when you're asking about my literary skills, uh, it, my literary skills are, uh, writing up the chart on, uh, what exactly took place in the oral cavity. Uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, writing a book, I, I needed, I needed someone with more, uh, skills, more, uh, ability to, to, to write. And, uh, to put it into a, a, into a very, uh, interesting format so that, you know, it'd be comfortable for most people to read. And, uh, I was fortunate enough to come across Linda Rosenberg, who, uh, actually met my parents more than 20 years ago, listened to the tapes, uh, interviewed with my parents, spent time with them, and, uh, she, you know, she put down the story and as she said during one of my, uh, uh, broadcasts with the University of San Diego, she said, uh, the story almost wrote itself because, you know, she, she had so much wonderful material to work with. And, uh, she was a prolific writer and she put it down, uh, so accurately and so well. So, you know, when was, that, it, when was it published? It was only published like about, uh, two years ago because when, when she actually, uh, you know, wrote, wrote the whole manuscript and, uh, I, I took the manuscript, uh, at that time to Simon and Schuster, which was a big, uh, book writing company. Um, and, you know, we have too many Holocaust stories, you know, uh, you know, uh, 
we're not that interested in it. And, you know, I, I, I kind of, look, I was busy with, with other things in life and, um, it just, you know, it just seemed to be like a, a big manuscript that I had on my bookshelf that just sat there. Well, uh, about two years ago, Linda called me up and said to me, uh, you know, Saul, I just got back from Chicago and I was at the University of Chicago with the, uh, literary department, uh, head and, uh, I was there for a conference and I happened to bring along the manuscript of our book and I gave it out to uh, a number of the people there and, uh, most of them were recognized authors. They read the book and they said, I can't believe you never published this. This is wonderful. This is an uh, unbelievable story. So, uh, she said to me, you know, in the era now of self-publishing, we should, we should, I think we should think, think about publishing the book. Uh, so I said, well, you know, I'll make some inquiries and, uh, see what I can do. In the meantime, I had more time on my hand as I retired from dentistry because of back problems. And uh, Linda was still teaching English at uh, the Jewish Academy. And uh, so she really didn't have the time to make the effort to look into the self-publishing. Well, I was fortunate enough to uh, run into uh, uh, a wonderful lady named Dee Desario, and, uh, she actually did her own self-publishing and, uh, she was very helpful in getting me onto Amazon and to connecting me with the people that are involved. I'm not technologically, uh, advanced. I'm a dinosaur when it comes to the tech computer, but, you know, we needed people to organize the, the, the book for the format of Amazon. Uh, we needed somebody to include the pictures. It, it, it became a family project too, because my brother-in-law, Bill Cooper, uh, you know, is a big photography, uh, advocate and, and he t- took all the old pictures and he tried to restore them and put them into the book. So, and created a, an album for them that I actually sent to you, Jeffrey, but, but yeah. uh, unfortunately you said you, you, you weren't able to include them in the story. Not yet. Not yet. But let me ask you, so we have a lot of uh, authors in the group. Um, your your book is uh, from Bergen-Belsen to Brooklyn. What, are, what have you learned about self-publishing that you would want to tell someone who who is in your spot, who's trying to uh, publish a book, has a family memoir, is really wanting to get it out? So what's the one or two things that you've learned? From that. Well, I, I, I think the easiest format is Amazon. And, uh, if, if some of the people in the group want to use some of the people that I have used, uh, I, I, you know, I would be more than happy to, uh, give them the, uh, information. Um, that's how, that's how it came about for me. So are you uh, published on Kindle? Are you published on Kindle or also paperback? Uh, both, both Kindle okay. and paperback. Yeah. There, 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 are, there are many people that have read it on Kindle and there are, you know, I've, I've been fortunate in that, you know, uh, I've, I've had hundreds of, uh, people buy the book and, uh, 
you know, uh, I, I'd also save hundreds on Kindle that have, uh, you know, so, so what, are you, what, is, what are the top comments that you're getting from your book? You can tell us. Oh, there, 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 you can actually go, go into the Amazon site and see the comments. They're all five star ratings and, uh, anything they all, they all, that stood out to you that you want to share? Well, yeah, I could. Um, if you give me a minute, I'll go, I'll go look for one of them that I found when, when I was doing a little bit of, uh, preparation for this, uh, podcast. Uh, which I thought was really, uh, very interesting because this, this was someone who read the book before it was published. And I don't even know who it was. Uh, Linda had given the manuscript to this, uh, to this lady. And, uh, it's, it's really, I, I came across it when I, right before this. So if you bear with me, I'll go Take find it. Second. Take a second. Okay, so tell us, tell us what you're going to share with us. Okay, uh, all all the positive reviews were wonderful on Amazon. Which you know, if anyone just goes on Amazon, they they, they can just read the reviews, which are all like I mentioned, five star. But this was before the book was published uh, a number of years ago. Okay, this is uh, a very touched and grateful reader was the way they, uh, warm regards. That's, that's how they sent me this letter. Uh, Linda gave them my address. This came, this came through U.S. Postal Service, not from email. <laughs> Dear Helen, David, and Saul, for the past few hours, I was so engrossed in your book that I feel I know you and can therefore address you by your first names. The book had such an impact on me, I feel as if I want to know more and more and more. I felt a part of your pain, your stress, your intense hardships and horrible experiences. I have felt your joy at the birth of each child and wanted to know about your grandchildren and what happened to everyone in this story. Fortunately, I could talk to Linda and get some updates but I was so sorry that the book ended. I also kept wishing I could see photographs of Helen David Saul, the candy store and other personalities in the book, which we put into the book, which, you know, her, her, her letter had, had an impact. I believe that it is our duty and privilege to read your book, to teach our children the wonderful lessons of life, and also the very, very, very bitter realities. It is important for readers to travel your journey and then still see your positive, bright attitude to life. This book should be required reading for all young adults. These kids should be aware of what some people have endured and lived through and how they continue and manage to live honest, good lives and to raise wonderful children and to be such positive contributors to society. I wish you all health, happiness, and a lot of nachas. And nachas in Yiddish means that you should just continue to enjoy. The fact that you made the effort 
and probably had to relive many awful experiences was most commendable. I sincerely hope you get this book published so that many, many people could be touched by your special story in the way that I was. Your story is a meaningful gift to all future generations. Thank you for sharing this with all your readers and with me. Warm regards, a very touched and grateful reader. Very nice. So, so let me ask you this question. I, I, we know each other very well. We both are part of a second generation group here in San Diego called San Diego Generations of the Shoah. And you are ones who give everything to the group. So tell us a little bit how you, how you got involved in the Yiddish club. Cause I want to tell our readers, our viewers that, uh, and listeners that Saul is the leader of the, of the Yiddish club. So tell us a little bit about your roles there. Well, you, you know, uh, it became, uh, I became friendly with uh, people that uh, have the same background, and I found out about was starting this second generation group, which uh, which kind of uh, was an offshoot of the New Life Club, which uh, my parents had attended for a while here in San Diego while they were alive, and uh, the Holocaust survivors that actually lived in San Diego most of their lives, and. Uh, I, I always uh, enjoyed Yiddish. Uh, uh, when I was younger, I, I, I kind of acted as a, uh, 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 someone who translated for my parents because, look, they had a, a, a real language barrier coming from Europe. Although my mother spoke like uh, four languages, but English wasn't one of them. Uh, but, you know, but she had the ability to learn English because she had that, uh, you know, I guess some people are geared to be able to know languages a lot e- uh, easier. And uh, she did come along with English, but English came easier to me as a kid because I, I was going to, uh, you know, pre-K and, you know, I, I, I was dealing with the United States, dealing with people that spoke English. So I, I was kind of like, I helped for the translation for them and many things in the candy store as well. So uh, Yiddish was something I always listened to because they spoke in Yiddish as opposed to my brother who was born uh, uh, more than 11 years later because my mother had trouble conceiving me and she had trouble conceiving him. And also with the candy store was not a, uh, an atmosphere for, uh, you know, for bringing up a kid in the back of the candy store. But, you know, she did get pregnant, and uh, my brother, when he was born, he was born into a house because we actually, you know, had saved up enough money from the candy store to be able to put a down payment on a house and move to an area that was a lot more Jewish. Um, and uh, my brother got a kick out of Yiddish, and uh, I, I, I wasn't going to divulge this, but uh, I told my brother, you know, just the other day, who, he's a prominent attorney in New York City, and uh, he's been on many uh, broadcasts in New York because he kind of takes after my mother with his uh, personality and his ability to uh, get inside of uh, people. And, uh, and he also tries to do the right thing. So, you know, when, when, when somebody gets killed in jail and, uh, you know, uh, and, and the place is called the tombs. 
and uh, he gets on TV and says uh, that, uh, you know, you're supposed to be incarcerated in tombs. You're not supposed to be put in a tomb, <laughs> which, you know, although although it's a little bit humorous, but it's pretty sad for the family. But he represented the family of, of the person that got hung uh, in, in, in while the uh, person who runs the, the jail uh, says to the uh, people that, uh, you know, work in the jail, uh, you know, the guy threatened that he was going to hang himself. And the uh, warden uh, tells, t- tells, don't, 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 he's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. Sure enough, he did it. And he killed himself. Yeah. Well, warden, you're a schmuck. <laughs> well, you know, anyway, it was a good case for my brother, along with many others. But anyway, I won't, I won't. I'm I'm not here to to you know to broadcast for him. He can do it himself. <laughs> he ha- he has it's a he has a tell us about the Yiddish club. Okay, well anyway, I w- what I was leading to is is that he really has a, a real command of, of Yiddish, and we have an upcoming Yiddish class. And I asked him if he would join because. His Yiddish is far better than mine. And the Yiddish club, I really get a kick out of it. And most of the other people get a kick out of it. The, the, the problem with most people is that they understand it because they were listening to their parents uh, speak it. But I think just like me, we all wanted them to speak English. And therefore, we talked back to them in English. So we didn't really talk back to them in Yiddish. My brother spoke back to them in Yiddish, and he was like a master of, you know, being in control of Yiddish. So he, he, uh, you know, he's had many scenarios where his Yiddish came in handy when, you know, he was, uh, you know, uh, working as a uh, delivery guy for UPS. Uh, he heard some uh, religious guys talking while he was having trouble with the boxes. And, uh, some, some guys were saying, uh, give a kick of them goy, tit, the weisnish tit. Well, what that, what that means in Yiddish means, take a look at that Gentile. He doesn't know what the hell he's doing with all those boxes and stuff. Well, my brother knew exactly what they were saying. So he went over to, to them and he said, he picked the guy up by his collar and he said, you know what? He would tell him in Yiddish, as mama which means if my mother heard what you just said, he she'd slap you right in the face. That's <laughs> Yiddish. The guy said to him, Yeah, which means I speak Yiddish real well. So anyway, so Yiddish Yiddish is 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 a precious language and uh everybody kind of got a kick out of it when I would speak it, when we would go to like uh, uh, presentations or, or we would have get-togethers. And then we decided to start our Yiddish club. And uh, Diane has been wonderful in, you know, uh, setting it up with uh, with the Zoom. And uh, she also ha- had had us go to the clubhouse at her uh, uh, at her home where we met at the clubhouse and uh, we'd bring in food, and it, it would be uh, a machaya. It means wonderful time to uh, to to express uh, the the uh, language of of our of our people that traveled 
throughout Europe and throughout the world for for centuries, and uh, you know, uh, is very. It's not, it's not very well spoken in in Israel because Hebrew is the language of Israel, but uh, but still it's 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 mamalushim, it's mother tongue, it's it's what we love, and, uh, have, and the people who do it with me once a month they love it. So I have a couple more questions for you, and then we'll uh, come to bring this to an end. I want to know what your favorite candy was at the candy store. Oh, my favorite candy. Well, I had two. I had yeah. two. You're, you can have two. <laughs> there, there were jelly royals, which had like a, a, je- a jelly inside with delicious chocolate on the outside. And, and in those days, you know, and licorice. I loved licorice. What, what year are we talking about? We're talking about 1954 was when we took over the candy store. Okay. And, uh, I had, you know, an assortment of candies that I could eat. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the fact that I became a dentist is probably somewhat related to the candy because from eating all that candy, I had to go to the dentist and boy, did I have cavities or so caries as is so did, you, did you have a Jewish clientele at, at your, uh, with your practice? Uh, some, some, uh, you know, I had a mixed clientele, uh, you know, uh, I had Italians, of course, because, you know, part of me is Italian, capiche? I mean, you know, I, I, uh, I, uh, I'm a little doozy pots, you know, that means crazy in Italian, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I got brought up between being a Catholic and being a Jew, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> you know, this on the sugar device. This is this. This is the way. This is the way I was brought up. So it, it's the way I came out. Well, I think that's a great stopping point. So I thank you, uh, Saul, for giving some of your time to us. Saul's book is terrific. It's uh, from Bergen Belsen uh, to Brooklyn. It is a tremendous read. Funny, emotional. Uh, it'll bring you to tears and to laughs. And I strongly recommend that you go out and buy it on Amazon. Uh, and Saul, thank you very much. And hey, thank you for the plug. You're, you're, you're great. I love you. All right.